0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, New Books in Psychology, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guest is Roy Richard Grinker, and he's here today to speak with me about his new book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness, published in 2021 by Norton. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest Richard Grinker is Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at George Washington University. He is author of several books, including Unstrange Minds, Remapping the World of Autism. He lives in Washington, D.C. Richard, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. So you're an anthropologist. I mean, how did you get involved in studying matters of psychology and mental health?
1: Well, it's actually a a very a sort of traditional uh, area of focus for anthropologists to look at psychology to the extent that we're looking at how other people think and feel, whether it's through different language concepts, uh, different types of experiences, different types of rituals and forms of child rearing. Um, So psychology is not something that's foreign to anthropologists, But generally anthropologists haven't looked at mental illness. Uh, until the past few decades. Uh, the, uh, the literature had been you know pretty scarce on this, in part because anthropologists were interested in studying the fundamentals of human behavior rather than what happens when human behavior goes awry. Uh, people were studying what the norms are and what things are supposed to be and not what happens when things don't go as they're supposed to be. So as an anthropologist... Um, I am part of a larger movement that started a long time ago uh, before, just as I was being trained uh, as an anthropologist to study variations in psychology and mental health across cultures.
0: So since we don't often have an anthropologist on our show, and many of our listeners may not know exactly what you do, what, what is a unique perspective that an anthropologist might bring to the matter of mental health and mental illness um, relative to that of a psychologist?
1: That's a great question. The perspective that an anthropologist brings is one of some kind of detachment in which you are looking at things from outside of your own culture. Now, that's only part of the process. And I'll tell you what the rest of it is in a second. What we do is we go to other societies uh, generally, sometimes we study our own, but it's pretty hard to see things clearly in your own because you know you take it for granted, you're, you're, you're seeing everything uh, every day. And so you can't really get the kind of objectivity that you can get when you go to another society. So I lived for two years in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I've done field work in South Korea and in India and in Namibia, South Africa. And part of the process of anthropology is to see things that perhaps other people can't see. Um, You know, it's sort of like the psychoanalyst who says to the patient, do you realize that you're doing this pattern of behavior? And the patient says, I had no idea, but you're right, because you're just living that life rather than analyzing it. And then the second part of anthropology is having been away, coming home and seeing your own world in a new light not to be too mundane about it but it's kind of like when you 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 let's say you left Miami and you traveled to Paris all of a sudden the cars would look really small and the streets would look narrow and then when you came back to the United States everything would look so big huge cars huge people huge streets and so it is that sort of movement back and forth between the strange and the familiar we want to make the strange familiar, and we want to make the familiar strange.
0: I mean, when you put it that way, it makes me think that perhaps you as an anthropologist are better positioned to psychoanalyze our mental health system than some of us inside the mental health system, especially in the Western world, are. Um,
1: well, as you know, we, we have a, what I think is a, a pretty good perspective to look at sort of the underlying structures. Uh, and the rules and the patterns that we take for granted because we're living them. It's I, not to you know go too far off on a tangent, but to use another example, if I uh, if I asked you uh, if your first language is English uh, to tell me the grammatical rules of English, you probably would have a tough time telling me the <laughs> grammatical rules. But if English was your second language, you'd probably be much more able to do so because you understand. You had to learn those underlying structures. So as an anthropologist, we say, okay, mental health in the United States, let's figure out how did we come to separate the mental from the non-mental? How did we come to talk about mental health or illness? How did the discipline of psychiatry develop? What were the underlying structures and the rules that, that helped this field or fields to develop? And for us to conceive of people as having distinctly mental illnesses, to do that, you've got to go look at your own society
0: almost as if it's a foreign culture. Now, the title of your book is Nobody's Normal, which I think is a very powerful title and a, and, and something that I relate to as well. And in the introduction of your book, you say, quote, normal is a damaging illusion, end quote. So... I'm interested to know how it is that your travels and your exposure to different cultures led you to that conclusion about what normal is and what it isn't.
1: The more one looks at other cultures and even history, because history is like, you know, the past is another culture in a a sense, like a foreign country uh, to use a trite phrase. um, The more one sees that uh, what any society considers normal is not embedded in nature. It's not natural. Normal is what a society considers to be good or ideal. You could just take something like normal body mass. You know, what is normal body mass? Well, in every historical period, what is considered to be normal body mass changes. What is normal sexual behavior? That varies from culture to culture and historically. Uh, What is uh, considered to be the um, normal family varies. And so normal is really a variant of the good, what a society values and considers to be good. And in the United States, the history of normality is tied up with an effort to enforce homogeneity, that there were norms that everybody should uh, uh, conform to, and we should all be like everybody else, the so-called age of conformity beginning in the 1950s. And the concept of normal was then used to criticize, to marginalize, to, t- to stigmatize people who didn't fit into that ideal. But it's always been an ideal. Anywhere you have a concept of normal, in any society, in any language, it's, a, it's something to aspire to rather than something that is real. And we should always remember that the concept of normal is very new, emerging in the 1940s and the 1950s. Before that, the word normal existed, but it was a mathematical average. Normal was, was average, even mediocre. You wouldn't want to be a normal person. That would mean you were average. But it's only in the 1950s that things change, where we decide that normal is an ideal to aspire to, and if you don't conf- fit with that, you are somehow um, deficient. That's why it's a damaging illusion. And there's no such thing as, in reality, as abnormal or normal nobody inhabits either of those fictional
0: lands as i call it in the book so if if normal is if concepts of normal are moving targets that change with culture and with time then why do we still use them as the basis for diagnosing people with any number of mental health conditions
1: it's very hard to give up on the concepts that we've grown up with um, we still use uh, the neutral pronoun he uh, to refer to you know some if you went to the doctor you know you'd say what did he say why why did i assume that the doctor was a he um, or to assume that somebody who got married has married somebody of their opposite sex we make these assumptions um, all the time even though we know better right Um, And so the word normal is something that we just we use every day without thinking. We also use other words without thinking that are things we should reflect on, like saying somebody's not all there or they have a screw loose or I was cracking up or I was having a breakdown. These are phrases and words that we use, but if we stop a moment and say, wait a minute, where do they come from? We see, for example, with those words like breakdown and cracking up, that they reflect an underlying assumption that the mind is a coherent entity of parts, only fragilely held together, and that they can break up and split. Yet that doesn't conform to anything we actually know from neuroscience you know, or genetics. It's not like you have this part, this part, this part, this part, and then they, they break away. The word schizophrenia is something that the most illustrious psychiatrists and and neuroscientists use today. And yet, ask any of them if they really think that schizophrenia is a divided or split mind. We have to look at these things and and question the way that our behavior and our language and our concepts reinforce older ideas that we might be better off getting rid of.
0: So, I guess, along with your critique of the current and the longstanding way of thinking about mental health and normalcy, in quotes, are you do you have in mind a better alternative, a, a better way that we ought to be think, thinking, um, a better way to think about mental illness? Should we even think in terms of mental illness at all? I think concepts like
1: wellness... And well-being uh, are particularly useful because they reflect the actual individual's assessment of how they're doing. Um, I and I certainly don't mind uh, the technical term of functional impairment that doctors use, because if your normal function is to sleep nine hours a night and to eat three meals a day, and that has been Disrupted your typical function—that's an—that's an impairment in something. Uh, if you have some kind of condition that is preventing you from doing what you want to do, what you should do, uh, that's where we can, I think, really appreciate these concepts of you know things like 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 wellness and well-being, but also the spectrum. Spectrum is really key to this because. The spectrum lets us know that you're never this or that, you're not depressed or not depressed. These are concepts that we use to help us understand the way people are experiencing their lives at any particular moment. So for example, I, I have anxiety because I'm human. If I did not have anxiety, I would not look both ways before I crossed the street. I wouldn't look out for pedestrians when I'm driving. I would probably have lots of accidents and hurt lots of people if I did not have anxiety because that is something that all human beings have. But there can be a point where that anxiety kind of goes over the border to prohibit me from doing the things that I want to do, that make me suffer, that make people around me suffer. And at that point, we then should be thinking in terms of illness or sickness or functional impairment. But it's not because suddenly I have this disease. It's because these uh, qualities I have, which are common to all humans,
0: is at a particular point on the spectrum where I need and deserve help. So tell me if I'm understanding you right, but it sounds like you are suggesting quite a paradigm shift. One from judging or, or thinking in terms of mental illness not in a way that's based in on on any kind of conceptions of normal or statistical norms but rather oh, one that's based in individual human suffering and and values it, it, am I reading you am I hearing you right yeah um, and I'm glad you use the word illness because
1: As anthropologists, we don't like to use the word disease so much or sickness um, or disorder. Um, We like to talk about illness precisely because of the way you defined it. You defined it as the person's experience of suffering. That's illness. And that includes the way that person experiences the world. It includes that person's um, family life. That includes their social supports the larger environment in which they live, the kind of health care they wish to receive, the kind of um, ad- adaptations they make in their life around that form of suffering. When we hear words like disorder, we hear, oh yeah, this assumption that somehow the mind is, there's an ordered mind and there's a disordered mind. When we hear the word disease in anthropology, we think more of the technician's lens, the person looking in the microscope and saying, "I see this virus" or "I see this bacterium," but you can't see human experience in a microscope. You can't see how a person's experience with, say, say breast cancer affects their family life, their vision for the future, their children's uh, lives, the, their their work lives, all the the complexities. Uh, of that experience none of that is is in the microscope and where anthropology helps us in the study of mental illness is that it trains our eye not on that you know technician's lens but on the full experience of the human being and that is something that requires that we see people within the complexity of their lives including their cultures including the processes that marginalize or stigmatize them, including the processes that make mental illness almost always a double illness, the illness itself and then society's negative judgment of it.
0: Now, speaking of cultures, one of the compelling aspects of the book is how much you detail the experiences that you had visiting all sorts of cultures and faraway places. Um, Do you have an anecdote or do you have any, any particularly memorable experience that really opened your eyes or or really taught you something?
1: Well, let me give you one example from home first. It was when a uh, freshman uh, woman in my class uh, said that the best day of her freshman year was when she was diagnosed with ADHD because for the first time in her life, somebody saw that she wasn't lazy or didn't work hard enough that she actually uh, needed help, and this concept of ADHD helped her understand herself, and it also helped to drive a treatment that was helpful for her. And it was at that point that I kind of realized, you know, uh, what was making her suffer was the fact that, not really her ADHD, what was making her suffer was that her family kept saying, you're just lazy and don't work hard enough. It was the way in which they interpreted her suffering as somehow a problem in her, individual. And yet the story I tell is it was her family, you know, it was her environment that was contributing to her suffering. So now let's just take a long plane ride to Namibia and we go to the hunter-gatherers who were living in the Kalahari Desert. And as I talk about this in Nobody's Normal, I, I met this man named Tomzo, who I write about, who, who clearly has schizophrenia, as we define schizophrenia. But the Juntoisi, the population in which he, he lives, that community doesn't have a word for schizophrenia. They have a word for kind of crazy. Um, but you're only crazy if you're actually actively hallucinating or having delusions and he was taking some medicines that were given to him by a Scandinavian non-governmental organization, and he wasn't hallucinating or having delusions. And so there was no word to define him at that point because he was not experiencing symptoms. But then how do people explain those symptoms? In contrast to the parents of this freshman in college who said that there was something wrong in her, the Namibians said, The reason that Tomzo has these delusions and hallucinations is because a spirit settled in him as punishment for something that an ancestor did. In other words, it's not his fault. He's a victim. He should be given social supports and care. He's not a deficient human being. He is the victim of being possessed by this spirit. And whether you believe in spirits or not, you have to admit that the um, the shifting of responsibility from the individual to something outside the individual is incredibly helpful in making sure that he's not stigmatized, that he's not seen as a bad person, and that he's not marked forever as a new kind of person, the schizophrenic or whatever that might be. Where one of the key insights that I found from all of my travels is that the more society takes the blame for an individual's suffering the less that individual suffers and the less stigma that person has attached to that form of suffering
0: can you elaborate on that last point about w- what you mean by society taking the blame yeah
1: well in the case of namibia yes yeah, society is taking the blame this is not his fault it's it's something that happened in our community and there was a A spirit. It's, it's, it's not in the individual, but to, to make it really clear, one only has to look at three really important points in Japanese history before the introduction of German and British psychiatric texts at the turn of the century, early 1900s, when someone was depressed uh, or anxious or otherwise debilitated with a, some kind of mood issue, they were seen to be, um, enduring hardship and they were seen to be persevering in life or to be struggling with the difficulties that all human beings experience as they go through life. But once the British and the German texts come in about psychiatric disorders, then the Japanese started to see mental illnesses as problems in the individual rather than problems in life in general, something wrong with the brain. Wherever we see something wrong, you know, think about psychological problems as as having, as being totally brain-based. You know, we see a lot of stigma. And so, whereas concepts of depression were used throughout the end of the 19th century in Japan, they stopped using them at the beginning of the 20th century because it had become stigmatizing. And that carried throughout the 20th century until the last couple of decades in which the problems in Japan, the rat race to get into universities, the job competitiveness, the hot the work hours, the um, inflation and the cost of things, aging in families where people had to take care of, of aging parents because they were living longer, has led to um, a refashioning of notions of depression and anxiety, mood disorders, so that it is now, um, It's almost expected that somebody will have depression at some point because they're living in an environment or a society that stresses us out that much. And so what we see there is society is responsible for uh, uh, mental illness at the end of the 19th century. The brain having a dysfunction is responsible for mental illness in the early and mid 20th century. And then by the end of the 20th century, society again is responsible. And then the stigma of mental illness decreases because you are not deficient. You are not broken. You are somebody who is under great stress. And I think there's a lesson here for us around COVID because COVID is a universal stressor. Everybody is affected by this pandemic. And so, if you said to somebody before the pandemic, you know, I'm depressed or I'm anxious, whatever that might be, uh, we might think that that was an aberration. Well, I wonder why that is. Why should that be? Um, Do you need to get therapy? Are you weak or fragile? Are you immature? Uh, Is there some other way I can stigmatize you for your suffering? But under the pandemic, oh, of course you're anxious. Of course you're depressed. It's expected. And actually under moments of great crisis, even wars, we see a kind of broadening of expectation that being uh, uh, under emotional distress becomes um, not only
0: uh, expectable, but reasonable. Now, in societies, present day or in the past, where Mental suffering, emotional suffering, has been conceived in this way. In other words, as as a normal part of life, as a normal response to things that happen. Is there also a different conception of treatment? Do they even think in terms of treatment for this kind of distress?
1: You have a particular example in mind. <laughs> well, you know, thinking
0: about what you said regarding someone in Japan yeah. becoming depressed. If 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 I follow you right. If they see it as something that's expectable and reasonable and and they think of it in terms of, of course, you would feel this way given X, Y, or Z, right. then does that mean that they their conception of what it means to heal from that or to deal with that, to put it in quotes, looks different? Do, do they, Is there less urgency to quote-unquote treat it? Quite the opposite. There is less stigma about getting treatment. Mm.
1: And so we, I mean, we can see this in the United States with the pandemic. I don't have figures to give you, but I would, I would wager that if you were to talk to them, you know, some of the major mental health delivery organizations in the United States during the pandemic, they would say that their, um, therapeutic sessions have increased, that they have had a big uptake in the number of clients that they've had. Um, so one of the problems of the stigma of mental illness is, um, and perhaps the biggest problem is that stigma is a barrier to care. So when we see stigma decrease, when we see the shame and fear about mental illnesses decrease, we see increases in treatment. And this is one of the central issues in every society in the United States. I mean, I in, in the world, uh, not just the United States, which is that um, uh, lack of treatment is really one of the uh, major barriers to health. Um, mental illness is probably the largest uh, global burden on uh, the healthcare system, on family life and unemployment. And um, in the stigma of mental illness tends to prevent people from getting that care. But sometimes little changes have big effects. I tell the story of changing the word schizophrenia in Japan to a word that was much less difficult or, or um, frightening. The word in schizophrenia really translated as sort of like a mind torn asunder. And then the advocacy groups, um, along with the, psych- the um, Japanese equivalent of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, decided to change the word to something that was pretty bland. And it probably would translate more as integration disorder. And once that happened, you saw a big increase in the number of people who sought treatment, who accepted treatment, who were diagnosed with this new term for schizophrenia. And so just changing the word, you know had a very, very positive impact. so 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 normalizing, for lack of a better word, mental illness, doesn't decrease treatment, it can increase treatment.
0: Now, do you think that there are things that those of us in the mental health field um, can do, should be doing to help this along, to help normalize treatment, um, to normalize this kind of struggling? You know, another way to ask the question is, is there something that folks in the mental health field are doing inadvertently to increase or to perpetuate the stigma around seeking help?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not one to give clinical uh, advice or to give advice to clinicians. I'm an anthropologist. But what I do say in the book is that if we understood the history of psychiatry and psychology, if we understood the history of mental health, we might not repeat some of the same mistakes in the past. We might not repeat some of the language that we use that has shamed people or marginalized people. We might not see mental illnesses as something distinctly individual. Um, we might we might be less often to, uh, uh, prone to see mental illnesses as strictly mental, and rather than biological and mental, we might be less likely to see mental illnesses as the product of things that happened only after the birth of that sufferer and not something that happened to their parents or their grandparents. We might have a bigger picture of human experience. And so what, as an anthropologist, you know, I find most startling about American mental health care is that it's an individual in an office, not that individual and their world.
0: In the office, mm-hmm. you know, from the book, it seems that you believe that, despite all the obstacles, we as a society are headed in a positive direction. Definitely, with regard to the way that we think about and treat people with mal- mental illness, w- what have you observed that makes you feel optimistic?
1: Well, I spend a lot of time with eighteen to twenty-four year olds as a college professor. And, you know, you look at them and you say, OK, however they're thinking about the world, that's probably the future. And they are talking about about disabilities, developmental disabilities, uh, new ways of thinking about body mass, uh, sexual identity, gender identity, all of these things in a way that is open uh, rather than secretive. Um, They're not whispering. The student who stands up, a good example, the student who stands up at the beginning of a lecture class with with 300 people in the class and says, hey, everybody, I'm so-and-so, I have Tourette's disorder, and I might say things that startle you or surprise you or seem to come out of nowhere, just want to let you know so you're not surprised. In other words, don't see me as weird See me with this concept of Tourette's that you probably all learned, even though your parents didn't know it, but you do. Or the person who says to his fellow classmates, I'm autistic, which means I'm good at some things and not good at other things. Um, Or I, I have challenges in this or that way. Or sometimes I don't look like I'm paying attention, but I am, I just have different eye contact. There is a kind of new dispensation or new approach to heterogeneity and to the idea that we are all on this spectrum and that we move along this spectrum or to put, you know, you used the phrase moving targets earlier. And and that's where I'm the most optimistic. That disclosure, that openness, secretiveness, not only creates, you know, or is the product of, creates and is the product of shame, but secretiveness also takes away the opportunity for understanding and support. When my daughter graduated from high school and my daughter has autism, she gave a speech. And as she started to give this speech, most of the students didn't know her in the audience. There were 3,000 people there. You could hear murmurs and whispers, which are of course the sounds of stigma. They didn't understand her unusual way of talking, this strange cadence, uh, rhythm, of her voice. And then very early in this short speech, she said, someone with autism like me and immediately all those whispers and murmurs stopped. Why did they stop? Because what had been strange and enigmatic now became framed or she framed it within this concept of autism that everybody knew. So when you hide something, you give reason to wonder about it and to whisper about it and to um, make have gossip and rumors about it. When you're open, when you take ownership and define for yourself and for others how you see yourself, um, that's empowering and liberating and destigmatizing.
0: You know, I appreciate you sharing that about your daughter and I know that you address it in your writing. Did you, did you go through your own journey with regards to how, how you handled and how you felt about your daughter's uh, autism diagnosis?
1: I didn't go through a journey from the lack of stigma to, stig- to, you know, from stigma to lack of stigma because I had a really weird life which is that I was raised in a family of psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. My great-grandfather was a psychiatrist and practiced psychoanalysis in 1910. Um, My grandfather was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. My father was a psychoanalyst. My wife is a psychiatrist. I was raised to think that nobody's normal. Um, So, no, I didn't. I've always been open um, about... Uh, mental illness and uh, whether it's, you know, me or my family or or my friends. So no, I didn't go through that. Um, Actually, it was the opposite. I kind of had to really learn as I was a child why certain things were stigmatized and why they weren't. Um, Because, you know, clearly in my family, the way we talked, uh, most mental illnesses, or at least the common mental illnesses depression anxiety things like that Depre- uh, depressive disorders anxiety disorders were not in any way just stigmatized they were considered normal um, but people still whisper that the single neighbor next door might be gay or that um, so-, so and so might have cancer and cancer was was talked about in a whisper so i really i understood stigma I just didn't understand it so much in relation to
0: mental illness as a child. You know, I'm going to tell you how I'm thinking about what you're saying. And you, th- you, you tell me what you think of this, this reading. But it, it seems to me like you were raised, fortunately, in an environment in which being, quote unquote, abnormal is normal. In which case, abnormalcy sort of loses its meaning. And I see a similar thing happening in society now. You know, I I too work with young people, college age students, and I've I've seen them doing this thing where they're now starting to use the language of quote unquote mental illness. They're starting to have conversations about, I think I might be borderline, I think I might have a personality disorder, I think I may be a little bit narcissistic, but they're not using it as a kind of um self-incrimination, they're using it in a descriptive way and in an exploratory way. They're, they're trying to understand their own difficulties and give it a name and they find it very useful. So it's yeah. its kind of like what you see oftentimes in society where a, a word or a concept that starts as a slur gets um, recuperated by the people to use against mm-hmm. and refashioned. And, and I'm of, all for that. Yeah. Uh, I have to say there are people who do not like
1: the colloquial use of mental illness terms. Like I'm maybe I'm a little narcissistic or maybe I'm a little OCD because I'm a neat freak Um, because, you know, or I have PTSD from a, you know, a terrible class I took, (laughs) you know, people object to that. They say, look, PTSD is a serious mental illness that can lead to suicide. Uh, Obsessive compulsive disorder is serious mental illness that can involve such functional impairment that, you know, you can't really operate in the world. Um, But I actually support that colloquial usage of the terms because I think that it takes away their power to hurt. It takes away their power to marginalize and it accepts that we are all on the spectrum. I don't think that when I have a student in my office that says they had PTSD from a terrible economics class that they really think they had PTSD. This is what you were saying in your question. And I don't think that they are saying that with a lack of knowledge about the seriousness of PTSD in somebody who's experienced a horrible, violent trauma or or adverse childhood circumstances or war or famine or genocide. Um, I think what they are doing, though, is they are accepting this new invocation to exist on a world in which everybody suffers. And that's going to make it less likely than that we will look at somebody who has PTSD in, you know, a clinical technical sense and see them as somehow a
0: bad person. You know, and I also see, in fact, in my own practice, cases where young people are, are using these terminologies, but, you know, they end up using them correctly. In other words, I, I, I've worked with people who have engaged in these kind of explorations with me, with their friends, with their family. I mean, you know, I think I may have bipolar. I think I may have some trauma. And when you talk to them about it, they're often right. They're often right. But what I find is that it makes the conversation so much more liberating for both of us involved because we can speak more honestly is, is, are you finding a similar thing in your Classes where people who really do may meet the criteria for these conditions are, are themselves able to be more open about
1: it. Yeah, I totally see that. And I, I think it's been um, particularly um, evident in autism, which has become uh, such a common concept. And the term is expanded to include such a wide array of people that it almost doesn't, you know. Whether one actually fulfills the criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders uh, for a particular condition, it's not, nor has it ever really been uh, the key to better support and care and happiness. It doesn't matter if you, you know, fulfill every checkbox on the list, uh, as long as that concept helps you in some way. No diagnostic term is good, um, or let me put it this way, the value of any diagnostic term is the benefit it provides. And who cares? I mean, if I were in your shoes, I would say, well, who cares if they actually fit every one of these criteria on this list of, of, of what should be in this disorder, as long as the concept of this disorder that we're using it for drives the most appropriate and helpful care. Why, you know, why should you
0: be a slave to some, uh, set of criteria? I I was just going to ask if given the trends that, that you're observing and the, in the direction in which things are going, do you, do you think that we're headed towards a point in time when maybe we won't be using the DSM so much? Maybe we won't be thinking so much in terms of discrete, um, conditions or mental illnesses.
1: Well, that's the move that the spectrum has led us to, away from the DSM's categorical view, older view of, of you either have something or you don't. Um, but the DSM now has embraced the idea of the spectrum. DSM-5 has all kinds of stuff about the spectrum. It's a guide. It's a framework. And it is actually very useful for comparability across scientific studies. So if I'm doing research on a particular community that I'm population in, say, you know, I'm in Istanbul and I'm studying um, eating anorexia nervosa and you are studying anorexia nervosa in Miami. Uh, We want to know that we have similar populations that are in our study and the DSM helps to standardize that so that those studies can then be comparable. But, um, uh, you know, Judy Rappaport put it best to me. Uh, She's the former head of child psychiatry at the National Institute of Mental Health. And she said, look, in my scientific practice, I am the most rigorous, you know, in my in my research, I am the most rigorous diagnostician. And I'm not letting anybody into my protocols that doesn't fit exactly. But in my private practice, when I see a kid, I'll call the kid a zebra if it gets him into the classroom that's best for him. So there's a difference between how something gets used for therapy and help and how something gets used in terms of creating comparability across scientific studies.
0: You know, we're almost out of time. I I want to remind our listeners that I am speaking to Rory, Richard Grinker, about his book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Um, Before we go, Richard, do you want to tell us about what you're working on these days or what you're up to?
1: Well, I'm on sabbatical right now, which is wonderful, Um, which we, you know, obviously, as in the the words sabbatical, Sabbath, we get uh, every seventh year as a professor. And um, there's a chapter in the book called The the, uh, Dignity of Risk. Um, And I'm working on expanding that chapter into a larger book-length project, which explores how we have overprotected people with disabilities in um, pushing them to pursue their goals and their dreams um, by, you know, withholding them from them opportunities to fail or to take risks um, with the presumption that they won't succeed. Whereas the people who are not disabled or considered, uh, you know, typical uh, are encouraged to take risks and to fail. And so um, what I'm doing is profiling people who have been able to um, do things that everybody else prevented, wanted to prevent them from doing because of a disability. Um, because the denial of the right to take risks and the denial of the right to fail um, actually has been pretty dehumanizing. And I think that um, one of the things that... Uh, most of the stories that I talk about, particularly around autism, have to do with in Nobody's Normal, is uh, that people succeed when they have failures. Um, but we've denied that right to people with disabilities.
0: I'm so glad that you're exploring that topic. That, that sounds really compelling, like it would find applications really in, in so many um, situations. In other words, not just with the physically disabled with but with lots of people who society deems um non functional or limited or incapable in some way. So I I wonder if you would be open to coming back on the show when the when the book is out. Absolutely. Love to. Well I wanna thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you for the book. Um and and for talking to me about it today.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it. I mean I would just you know, I know that there may be listeners who um, have different um, uh, abilities, and um, the book is available as an ebook and an audio book as well, um, if people prefer that.
0: And where can people find you online if they want to follow your work?
1: Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Um, I have a website uh, which has events on it that i uh, participated in. Roy dot uh, my university,
0: George Washington University. I'm 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 out there. Great. Well, thank you so much and again. Course, Richard. Amazon. <laughs> yes. Yes. Go go on Amazon and get the book. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard.
1: All right. Take care. Thank you.
0: Bye bye.